Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. This week's podcast is the second half of our countdown of the top 10 podcasts for 2021. You're going to hear the best snippets from each episode and we've ranked them five to number one with guests ranging from a cryptocurrency expert, a restaurateur, an executive mentor and an individual whose severe physical and emotional breakdown is a good lesson for us all about just how vital it is to look after our own personal well-being. I do hope you enjoy the show. First up is Matt Hawkins, CEO of Kudo Ventures, which provides applications for users to monetize their computer hardware. He is also CEO of Kudos, a leading cryptocurrency. Matt's interest in computing were apparent as young as five years old, and what followed was a life of risk-taking, disruption, and what he termed as operating on the bleeding edge. We had a great conversation about the nature of risk and the importance of not only loving what you do, but recognising when there is no, this is no longer the case and having that boldness to try something new. Matt, you've been on such an interesting journey building and selling previous technology businesses. It's going to be wrong for me not to explore those early kind of aspects of your journey. And as I understand it, Matt, you started your first business at college and university selling computer equipment. How did that come about? Yeah, well, I sort of started when I was about six and my mum went to <laughs> went to uh, cash and carry and used to get sweets cheap so I used to go in there buy them with all my pocket money and then spend them sell them to the neighbours out of a plastic till in the garage so that's sort of where it started very early days then. yeah <laughs> and I've always been into IT I was sort of programming when I was five so uh, at school I was doing business studies GCSE uh, yeah. one of our projects was to set up a business uh, and I did that I think I was 13 when I did that. And that sort of got the bug to do it properly. And I knew how it actually worked. Yeah. So I sort of started setting up, uh, this was well before the internet was anything, an e-commerce. Um, so I, uh, there was still computer magazines, you know, and I, so I used to buy software and computers wholesale and sell them in the computer magazines. I used to advertise in the different um, Acorn magazines. That was the area that I was in. Okay. And that sort of was pretty good for pocket money through school and college. And then uh, and then when I got to uni, I set up another business, building computers for businesses. And that sort of helped subsidize my university degree. <laughs> wow. And where did that early interest in technology come from? Is it in the family or is it just something that just hooked into? 
No, no, not not in the family at all, actually. Uh, my, my dad, you won't like me saying this, but my dad used to be the two-finger typer, you know, on the keyboard. <laughs> He's improved a lot now. <laughs> You've taught him, have you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, really, where it came from. I think, oh, yeah, actually, I do. Uh, so <laughs> my handwriting was not great, and I was, you know, it just wasn't very legible and uh as soon as i got given a computer when i was five i was like wow this is it and i was just yeah. typing away and loving it and and that was what got me into them i think Brilliant. so uh just a born techie really <laughs> <laughs> i mean i suppose it's probably something about your mind and it's about technology but are you always intrigued about what's new and what's different and what's happening is that one of the things that's helped you succeed if you think that yeah i i do like building stuff that's kind of a bit bleeding edge okay you know or, or best of breed and as new technologies come out there's things that you know that you may have as a pipe dream for many years but then all of a sudden one day that technology exists and if you now pull together you know a load of different projects a load of different technologies you can now build things which were a pipe dream five ten years ago so you know i've always had a dream of being able to build things better and use technology to do that. So I think that's probably where the bug comes from, is I like building stuff and and seeing it succeed and then, you know, doing good with it as well. You know, if, if we can, as well as, you know, doing well, you know, financially as a business, actually, if you can help people uh, and, you know, help the world and improve the world with it at the same time, that's even better. Have you got any experiences of being at that bleeding edge and it not quite going to plan? Many. <laughs> That's the thing about being at it, I think. Um, I mean, if it, it, the good thing is if it's a bleeding edge and it does go to plan, you accelerate way faster than you could in any stable environment. Um, and, you know, you've kind of got your, your bell curve of the growth cycle, you know, of a, of a product and the market. And I think, you know, you can, you can go for the, the laggards and the slow moving market, but it means you've what you build moves slow and, mm. and what the technology you build moves slow. So I think it, you need a balance because you need a stable business and a yeah. foundation to build on. But if you've got that foundation, it gives you the luxury of then being able to build things that are yeah. bleeding edge. And it, it is more exciting. Yeah. And if you can be the first to do something, I think that's always exciting as well and proves that it is possible when you know people haven't managed to do it before. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's, it's about excitement as much as anything. Obviously, you had a very successful exit out of C4L uh, in 2016. If you look back now, how did it feel when you sold that business? Because that was your true baby, wasn't it? It was a business you really yeah. started at a young age, grew, matured in, pivoted, developed, and then exited. And I'm always interested and intrigued to see how people feel when they look back on hindsight at the exit from that kind of business. Yeah, uh, and I was in two minds of selling because it is your baby it becomes your life as yeah. well it's not just a job you know it, it's it becomes part of your personality as well because you sort of are that company yeah. <laughs> and you know you end up friends with everybody that you work with and you know so it is probably you know the majority of your life um so it is quite when you go through the, the sales is a huge amount of time you know and hours and Many, many nights going past, you know, midnight and working through the night trying to get, trying to get it done. Yeah. Going through due diligence. Yeah. yeah. And 
one one of the things I just say is if if you do want to consider selling your business, you know, even if you're doing it in two years' time, get the paperwork sorted out now. <laughs> that was one thing I learned was, uh, yeah, you know, running a business for sixteen years, and we're now trying to find a contract from fourteen years ago. <laughs> These things just, you know, you you don't even think like that. You know, it's luckily there's a much better CRMs and everything that's in place now, but most things just get either stuck in a cupboard or scanned and stuck in a folder on a file server somewhere yeah, and you think you'll never <laughs> need them you, you think you'll them. never need yeah, access exactly. to them and then the buyer says what's about yeah and have you yeah. got <laughs> yeah we, we ended up having to bring a team of admin people in to try and like, get everything in place for three months yeah. um so it's a huge huge amount of work if, if it's a complex business you know if you haven't been running it yeah. long and it's relatively small it's much easier but yeah I, i'd say you spend a lot of time just getting all that in yeah. place to start with so yeah, you've gone through all of that and then you've sold. So we signed the contract on the Friday. This was Feb 16. And then like the Saturday, I was just, I think we had one glass of somebody with the company that we'd signed the deal with. And then on the Saturday, I was just glad to get some sleep. <laughs> it, was, it was just a relief. And it was on the Monday. It's like, I've now got to integrate our company with this yeah. company that bought us. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, straight back to the grindstone. So it's like, you literally think you're going to party and celebrate, but actually you haven't even got time to think no. about it. Number four on our charts is Glenn St. John Colgan, Managing Director of Augmentus, which provides expert-led managed services and also assists the private sector to bid for and deliver public sector opportunities. Glenn has enjoyed a varied career that includes long stints working with teams within Whitehall and within government, as well as in consulting, security and even champagne importing. This was one of those conversations that the further it progressed, the more apparent it was that we shared very similar views around business principles and the value of work. He also provided some great insight into navigating the public and private sectors. I suppose the hardest challenge that I found working with the public sector was actually one about uh, communication. It's very, very different to the private sector. Uh, it's very much about diplomacy and not about confrontation. Mm. Uh, and the challenge that why is that a challenge for me is because I'm I'm from Yorkshire. I try to blame my heritage because I'm uh, somewhat blunt and direct <laughs> <laughs> and quite direct. So so it, it has taught me enormously about um, and that brings everything about leadership, about communication, about delivery and success in a different environment you have to adapt really mm. well to succeed and to 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 still be there supporting 20 years later and uh, and enjoying it and and my directness albeit softened been appreciated it actually cuts through a lot of the jargon and they enjoy some straight talk every now and again so that that's 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 what we've been doing that's what i've been doing enjoying it thoroughly but do you think the civil service in the public sector is changing to be more commercial it is. It's desperately trying. Um, so the, the the government commercial function and the government commercial organisation is trying to help uh, the people that run a lot of these programmes become more commercial. Mm. Uh, so they've got a series of assessments out there. They've got a plan. And one thing that, that people don't realise, it's not just about the procurement. Procurement has been focused on for the last uh, 30 years since the public uh, contracts regulations were introduced. Um, so that's nothing new. Procurement's had such a focus, though, because you can get legally challenged for it. But what they forgot was actually when you've got the contract and the supplier on board, how do you then manage them? Mm. 
Mm. And diplomacy doesn't always work. So you've got to be commercially astute, commercially advanced to be able to drive the best from these very large organizations that are commercially advanced. And and that's what they're trying to get on top of. But when they say they've got 2,000 people uh, running commercial contract management they haven't they've got over 30,000 people who operate these contracts wow so you get a procurement person sign the contract no legal challenge whoop you do lob it over the fence and then these technical specialists who are excellent at what they do economists whether it's the foreign office or the health sector they're not trained in commercial contract management and it's only now over the last few years, starting to become more prevalent that there is genuine contract management. So yes, I'm I'm pleased to say, but will it be fast? No, not at all. It's going to take mm. it's going to take a generation to get there to really get those skills. You talk about um, also being very key to you is having strong business principles. So, what does strong business principles mean to you, Glenn? I love it. It's such nonsense, isn't it? Everyone should have strong business principles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of like one of those words. Isn't all phrases, those multi-billion yeah. pound organizations, they've got no business principles at all. Of course we all have them. There's one guiding one um, that that has always that we've always succeeded in delivering, which is doing the right thing. And I'm not mm. being pious about this. It, it is genuinely every time we've sort of like made the wrong decision, tried to get a bit woo and a bit way, as my mum would say, it's always come back and bitten us in the bum. So doing the right thing, being transparent, being open. Uh, if you can't do it, say you can't do it. If you're charging a price, charge a reasonable price. If you're going to add more value add, do it. Yeah. You know, give value back. If you're, if you're talking about social value, do it. So everything we do is about, it, it's about walking the walk. It, it is about doing the right thing and never never just doing it chasing the money because every time you chase the money chase the numbers your behaviors change yeah and when your behaviors change everything walks away from you because you look desperate you look urgent you the wrong measure as soon as you say let's tell you what we're okay we're fine let's just do the right thing say the right thing turn up and do do what we say we're going to do it always comes back and we've had we've grown because of that every single time all of our work but probably 95 percent of our work is through reputation and recommendation what impact do you think your entrepreneurial life has had on your four children oh that that was a tough one was that to think about because i'll be honest even i've always been entrepreneurial i i, I'm, I hate the expression it's such a badge now yeah. but I, i've always been intuitive um inquisitive about doing things better my mum and my parents were uh we we came from very very little and and from a seaside town bridlington in the northeast and they always strive to do better so they set up they had a cafe they had a bed and breakfast they had a hotel they and it grew and grew just through dogged determination and to, to, to try hard but even when i went into into industry i was still doing 16 hour days so whether i'm working for myself and running a business or or whether I'm working for someone else, that's who I am. So do they see more of me because I'm an entrepreneur for want of a better expression and free and loose with my time? No. Um, Am I, am I better placed? Would I be a good employee anymore? No. So I'm probably, my my mind is probably more at peace because I can be who I want to be in these industries and choose where I invest my time and hopefully get more satisfaction out of it. So the family will benefit from that. There's a difference between uh, personal ambition yeah. and professional ambition. And when when the ambition 
is outside of yourself, you become an enormously better person and better mm. leader and better colleague. Yeah. Uh, when it, when you're out for yourself, so you want, to, I wanted to be a director. I became a director at 29 of a billion pound firm. My God, I was on that, but yeah. don't get in my way on my way there. I must've been an awful person to work with for otherwise, because that was personal ambition. Then you get to a point where it's beyond that. And that's that personal growth, that mindset, mm. growth mindset, where you say, actually, it, it, I, I've, I've sufficient now. People say, "What do you do? You want money? How much money is enough?" It's irrelevant. Yep. Am I a multimillionaire? No. Am I really comfortable? Yes. But I'm happy with that. But it's more than that now, and that's that's the growth mindset. Is that it's beyond personal ambition, and how can you how can you exploit, expand, help other people go beyond their personal ambition? Up next is Lyndon Stickley, a serial entrepreneur and executive mentor who over the past 30 years has invested in, grown and sold six companies with great success. As a result, he has a wealth of knowledge and experience around company growth and investing. Lyndon also has some profound views on the nature of work and how we can sometimes forget the reasons and meaning behind what we're actually doing and what we're doing it for. He was even honest enough to admit there have been times when he's been left wondering what the point of it all was. It's this quest for meaning and this desire to install it in others that drives another aspect of his life, which is a passion for mentorship. He currently mentors several managing directors to help their companies and themselves realise their full potential. It was a really fascinating conversation. You talked what I'd call it the entrepreneurial business journey, which, and, and I talk about it as startup then that intuitive growth because things are going well you're doing things because it's in your gut you're building a team and if you're not careful it just turns into frantic success yep absolutely. and i think that's reflective in what you're saying and as a lot of businesses get stuck in that frantic success part because they don't know how to build a team to delegate yep. to let go to put the systems in and often they've never been trained to do that and they've got no. no experience in doing it the 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 very innovators that breathe life into these opportunities are often the ones that haven't got the experience because yeah. they haven't done it before in other companies and so they substitute the experience fit with energy um, which is great because you get out of the gates and and you you know you work super hard and you've got the enthusiasm and it rubs off um, but I've come across many businesses not just in the ones I've, I've built myself but others I've helped as well where they do get stuck in a place where, you know, 30, 40, 50 people and they've got responsibilities, they've got profits flowing, they've got a level of structure. But actually, it's sort of at that point, it, it's you've got to make the decisions to build you know, a yeah. professional business. You've got to make the decisions to have a proper management team and good practice and, yeah. and trust others. Um, other, otherwise, it is just, a, although not necessarily inappropriate for some, but it is just a business run by the owner. Um, but for some, that's fine. It, yeah. it depends what their aspirations are. We built something that was like no other cemetery that, in the UK. And what was interesting about that was, and I think maybe pertinent as well to the time of life, um, and that was in 2010, I'd um, uh, cremated my dad. Okay. And actually um, having the experience firsthand of just how awful cremations or burials are in mm. terms of it's a, it's a sort of a conveyor belt. And, you know, you rock up at the crematorium, whether it's Bournemouth or anywhere else, but you rock up at the crematorium and you're not sure if that crowd's yours or if it's the one that's just come out or is yeah. that the one you're joining? You've got a half an hour slot. Um, I, um, I wanted to do a eulogy for my dad that was at least half an hour. And I was told, no, you can't have that much time because there's only a half an hour for the whole service. We need you to keep it down to about 14 minutes yeah. if you can and so on. And that had all happened. 
Um, and obviously that was maybe in my mind, but what we set out to build with uh, the cemetery that we built was something that was far more akin to a Four Seasons hotel experience rather than a municipal yeah. um, um, burial ground. And so um, we set about building a brand and a proposition and delivering on something that was entirely transformational. And I wouldn't say unique. And, and actually mentioning earlier about the fact of I, I tend to work with the innovator. I was involved quite a lot with the innovation of this one in particular, but it wasn't unique because it's very much like an American model. American cemeteries and the, and the service you get are very much like that. But we uh, created effectively what we termed a park. It wasn't a cemetery. We called, right. it, we called it Kemnal Park. Um, and after a lot of soul searching about what we wanted to achieve and why and how, we actually set about on the premise that it's a place for the living as well as those that have passed. So the whole point is this is an experience for the living and it's a place that we wanted people to come back to time and again. And we wanted to um, recognize the celebration in someone's life and the ability to um, feel proud of what you've done with yeah. that service. Based yourself out in America for three years, what did you learn about the way in which Americans do business compared to how we do business in the UK? And did you bring any of those lessons back with you? Uh, I hope not. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of difference. Maybe I did. Um, it's very different. And uh, I would say one of the things that um, we used to joke about is in the UK, the UK culture and uh, sort of general pragmatic UK business is um, aim, 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 fire. And in the, the American way is fire, aim, 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 aim. And uh, it was very much can do, go, 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 you know, um, everything's reached for yeah. the moon effectively. Um, and there's some great upsides with that because of possibility. Yeah. Uh, and if you are in the right place in the right time, you know, getting funding, getting building teams quickly, throwing people at things and, you know, building 50, 100 people, you know, in a short space of time. It's very possible, much more possible than here, I think. Um, so uh, there's definitely the, the proactivity, the West Coast mentality. And that was a tech business I was out in America with. Um, and so, yes, that was a positive. But I'd say on the downside of that, I'd say there's a huge amount of wastage and just wreckage from the, those that do succeed. Mm. So you can grow things really quickly and you can throw a lot of money at it and raise the funds and so on. And, you know, everyone celebrates the successes. But what you don't see, like with pop stars, is, you know, for the one pop star that you celebrate the success and all the hard work, you know, you don't see the 10,000 that didn't make no, it. Fall by the um, wayside. Exactly. Yeah. Um, success rarely falls in your lap and uh, delivers everything you need, um, unless you're a lottery winner, which I think is another conversation. And I don't, <laughs> and I don't think that's successful. I think that ruins more people than it, than it makes happy. Um, so I would say, uh, without a doubt, the drive to succeed, the hard work. I mean, hard work is an absolute core element of anything that uh, you do if you want results, whether that's personal or professional. I think a lot of work's required to get um, you know, good results or to get places. Um, but it's interesting because if you'd asked me in my 20s and 30s, probably I'd come out with the usual cliches, the harder I work, the luckier I get, yeah. you know, I make my own luck. Um, and, and I think there's an element of that. I think there's a, uh, you know, I've talked with some colleagues in the past of the buses of opportunity that come along and they're always coming along and it's a question of whether you get on them or not. Um, so I would have argued historically that, no, you do make your own luck and it's, it's not about luck. Um, but actually, I'd say I don't agree with that at all anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. 
I don't agree with that at all. And I think that you can get places with hard work and graft. Um, but for a number of the exceptional achievements that people, um, uh, you know, talk about or, you know, people are seen to do, I think there's large doses of luck in, in many, many places that people take for granted. And then they like to appropriate it and decide that no, that wasn't luck. That was me. My definition of success from where I'm at now, I would say is balance and a level of contentedness with the journey. Uh, it's not happiness. I, I quite passionately believe that if you pursue happiness, you're pursuing something that's innately ephemeral and you can't pursue the peaks without the troughs because they go together. Mm. And therefore, the, the greater the happiness you pursue, the greater the troughs that you'll be trying to avoid and in itself creating imbalance and anxiety and so on. So I think... Um, there's way too much content today these days on people pushing happiness and chasing happiness, like chasing wealth. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think there's plenty of studies done that have uh, now recognized there's a certain amount of money that people need to feel secure. And beyond that, happiness doesn't go up. The second most popular guest of 2021, so we're here at number two, was Joshua Simons, a serial entrepreneur who over the past two decades has founded several highly successful businesses in the nightlife and hospitality sectors, including Priva and Chicken and Blues. Joshua is driven by the love for bringing people together for good times and good food. He is also someone who recognises the value in failure and learning to adapt and grow when things get challenging instead of just packing it all in. In this podcast, there was also revealing conversations around work-life balance, the long-term effects of the pandemic on the hospitality sector and how he almost became a professional golfer. But at the age of 20, made the decision not to turn professional and joined the family business instead. What drove you to that decision? Um, well, I mean, firstly, I, I, I started playing golf when I was around 10 years old. Uh, my grandfather got me into it. And um, it, was, it was just one of those epiphany moments in my life as a kid where I, I thought, wow, this is what I want to be. Yeah. And um, like kids of, you know, footballers, whatever, artists, musicians, mine was golf. And, and I was given the opportunity by my, by my family to uh, give it a really good go. Um, and I played, you know, pretty much full time when I left school at 16 for four years around the world. Um, and during my school days, I was always having time off to go to tournaments. My dad was driving me around the country, flying me to different areas of Europe to play events. So I had a brilliant run. Um, but I, th I think the uh, the decision came when I was 19 or 20. We'd moved down to Bournemouth from London at that point. Um, and I had a bit of a life moment where I thought, you know, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Mm. Because yeah. that's essentially what you're signing up to. It's a lifestyle. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a career. Um, and it went from being like a, a passion that I really loved um, and was becoming good at uh, to really being a job. Yeah. Um, and that switch, I think... Um, meant I lost a little bit of the love for the game. I mean, I, I went through a, bit, a period of bad form as well. Yeah. Um, and I was traveling around, staying in B&Bs and all around the country and, and, you know, not playing that well. It's not a particularly glamorous it, life. Do you know what? Yeah, stage, I mean, it's, it's, it? It, yeah no. it, was, it wasn't as glamorous um, as it may seem. Um, I, I enjoyed it, but it got to a stage where I thought, actually, you know, maybe I'm not Josh Simons, the golfer. That's how I was introduced by my mum and dad to all their mates. And yeah. uh, it was, oh, he, he's a golfer. Maybe I don't want to be a golfer anymore. And okay. I, said, I said it to mum and dad and they were like, you know what? You don't want to be a golfer? Don't be a bloody golfer. Just put, yeah. your, put your clubs away. And I said, all right, I'll do it for a few months. Um, and uh, my dad had opened up a restaurant and he said, come and do a bit of work for me. And uh, never went back to it. What drew you to the nighttime nightclub sector? Um, I, I think I was a good age, at a good age for it. I was sort of 20, 21 years old. Uh, my dad had Jimmy's in Bournemouth. Um, 
he he I didn't like working as a waiter I didn't like working as a barman um mm. you know I don't mean anything derogatory towards those careers at all but it just wasn't for me yeah I was trying to find my niche in my dad's business yeah. um and he said okay well look how are you going to drive some revenue for me then and I said well I can start setting up some nights and you know live band nights and right. do this and that and get into promotion so is it promotion yeah, promoter, promoter, promotions and marketing and, and the, fir okay. the first project he gave me was at Jimmy's um he said okay do something on Thursday nights Thursdays should be busier um, so I put together a band called the Jimmy's House Band, um, called it Thursday Night Live, did all yeah. the marketing, local magazines, press, yeah, all that sort of <laughs> stuff. And and it went from being a two or three thousand quid Thursday to being a six, seven grand Thursday yeah. and, and sustained for a couple of years. Um, and he said, I, I kind of found my position in the company as like sales okay. and marketing. And then next door to Jimmy's, there was a, uh, a venue that had gone bust. It was a bar. And yeah. uh, I pitched my dad the idea of, of doing a nightclub there. And uh, I've been up to London a few times, seen the kind of Las Vegas style VIP table clubs with the champagne on you know, sparklers, yeah. that sort of thing. And I said, you know, Bournemouth could do with something like that, like yeah. a VIP small table club. So he backed me on that. That was a great success. Uh, we ended up selling the whole Jimmy's uh, brand for around a million quid a few years later. So it was, it, was a, it was a really successful project. I thought I was a bit of a legend, driving around in a Mercedes, you yeah. sold my nightclub. <laughs> I made it. Yeah, I thought I made it. Uh, little did I know the next five years would slap me in the face. But um, yeah, I think getting into the nightclub business was, was for me, fun. And, and, and it, was, it, it encompassed uh, marketing and promotion, which is where yeah. I found my niche. What I learned from that, from that uh, period was that, um, you know, overnight you can lose everything yeah. if you're not on the case with the important stuff. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, like I say, my dad was kind of backing me on the whole thing. So I felt, I felt bad because my dad would never open nightclubs unless it was me who was pushing it. You know, he, <laughs> did, he, didn't, give, he, didn't, he didn't like nightclubs, you know. So it was kind of me and my team that were driving this kind of big project. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, th I think, I think e ego took a huge bashing. Um, it definitely humbled me um, because I went from, you know, driving a Range Rover to not having a car mm. overnight. Um, you know, couldn't afford to pay my kids nursery fees. Yeah. Um, you know, I hadn't saved any money because I was just, you know, for me, it was just only ever going to get better. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it definitely brought me back down to earth, brought us all back down to earth in, in many ways. Um, it made us realize that actually material wealth, um, all the trappings of success like cars and holidays and stuff aren't that really, aren't that mm. important. You know, it's stability and financial security and being able to sleep at night yeah. is, is far more important. So, uh, yeah, it definitely realigned us, I think, during that time. From a philosophy perspective, being an entrepreneur um, and trying to be an entrepreneur, a successful one, you sometimes think that you need to have lots of things mm. going on. Um, and the more the, the more plates you're spinning, the better. You want to show off about it. It's like a badge of honor. Yeah. I've got 10 businesses. I've got eight businesses. Yeah. Look, how, look how great I must be. But actually, um, you know, some of the most successful people in the world just did one thing for yeah, 50 I, years. I talk a lot <laughs> you know? about, and I, you know, I've made, made that mistake before. I talk yeah. about spending some time out in China, you know, looking at modular housing and, and all yeah. of that with, you know, with a property developer friend. And it was just a distraction. 100%. And it was a sideshow and it was a shiny yeah. new thing. That's exactly right. But yeah. it, ultimately it was a distraction. And actually you've yeah. got to have focus. I talk about fo focus, passion and belief in what you do. That's right. And without that, you know, and, but some people can sustain it, can't they? Some people have a talent yeah. for being able to have that focus, passion and belief in multiple things. Yep. Yeah. And delegate well and build a team around them. I think I think delegation and team building is the main thing. Yeah. Um, there's no way that one person could run ten businesses no. and and, and, and do them all do no. them well. Just can't do it. The whole hospitality sector has had to evolve and and will no doubt evolve again when we reopen. But thankfully, um, I think 
human beings are very adaptable yeah. and become used to things. I mean, I, I know before the pandemic, we were trying to push click and collect to our customers, ordering on, online and, and collecting. And a lot of our customers are like, I don't want to order a click and collect. I don't yeah. even like the internet. You know, I want to come down, speak to member staff, order what I want, wait yeah. for it and go. And then eventually we had to say, look, you have to order a collection. We, could, we, don't, we weren't taking walk-in takeaways because it was too busy in the yeah. site. Um, so they started ordering because they had to. Well, yeah. now... They, they demand click and collect because they love the efficiency of it. They like knowing what they've ordered. They like getting the confirmation email. They like arriving a minute before it's ready. Yeah. Um, you know, so now 90% of our orders will be click and collect from customers who six months ago were complaining yeah. about it. It's so that's going to happen again. You know, these, these new systems of ordering at the table on apps and stuff, there'll be friction. And then when people realize that their, their customer journey is actually enriched by this technology, yeah. um, they'll adopt it. And so here we are, the number one podcast for 2021. And our guest was James Pickles. And I'm so pleased that he's taken our top spot because this was a particularly special episode with a very important message. James started life in 2019 as a sales director at a top technology company. For the past 10 years, he'd grown his part of the business from basically nothing from a startup to £6 million plus in annual revenue. And he was heading up and leading the sales team in Europe. He was, by most people's perception, a highly successful individual. However, in March that year, James had an intense mental and physical breakdown that left him unable to speak, let alone work. He spent the remainder of that year on leave and underwent regular intensive therapy. James has thankfully since recovered and has used this experience to become a personal performance coach. James told his story in a compelling and incredibly honest fashion, and I feel it's that narrative that's vital for us all to listen to. It's all too easy to accept stress as another part of being a business owner. And it's easy to fall into the trap of believing one must always go with the other. Of course, there are hard times. Of course, there are worries and concerns. But the crucial thing is whether you speak about those things or not. Too often, I've known or heard of business owners and business leaders burning out. I've practically done it myself. And especially in these particularly uncertain times, it's extremely hazardous to close off and try and deal with everything on your own. As James's story shows, the consequences can be severe. The snippets for this episode will follow, but I applaud you. If you're in business, if you're a leader, go back and listen to the entire episode. It is great that this episode is number one for 2021. The first two or three weeks of January started pretty quiet. And we we're like, yep, that always happens. But come on now, what are we going to do? And then all of a sudden, it, was, it wasn't quiet at all. Um, it looked for a little while like Q1 was going to be bigger than Q4, which is just right, absolutely heard unheard of. Uh, lots of trade shows. I'd run around Europe doing talks and being on discussion panels and a chairman's conference, which I uh, hosted and properly front of centre, a lot of travel. And it was all very stimulating, Warren. I was having a lovely time until somebody asked me how I was. Right. Uh, that simple question. Yeah. How, how are, are you? How are you doing? And I replied, how I always replied to all questions of that nature from anyone, which was fine, brilliant, excellent, splendid, superb. And this colleague of mine, who knew me pretty well, it was a different part of the business. So I didn't report to her. She didn't report to me. We were peers. Um, we collaborated a few times, but you know, mostly it was just two peers. And uh, I liked her and trusted her, and she seemingly liked me. So she noticed that my fine didn't ring true, 
and we were at a trade show at the time actually or rather at a Weatherspoons around the corner from a trade show right. afterwards debriefing <laughs> on stuff and we've done all the whole who met who about what and what are the actions and all that jazz and so most of the team had gone it was just I was just left with her my immediate boss the guy that ran all of Europe uh, the most senior guy in my team and another colleague that worked with okay. lots and lots of things so it had gone from 40 of us to six of us around the table at which point she'd already asked me twice how I was by then okay in a kind and of you've done you your sure? fine brilliant done, yeah i've done my fine brilliant and followed up with uh no no i'm fine no, i'm just tired no i'm just a bit tired i'm fine i'm fine honestly yeah move on move on move yeah. on yeah yeah that's not the time <laughs> um and everybody buggered off apart from this these six and she leaned in a third time with a sort of more with what uh, uh, uh an inquisitive but gentle so it's like quite a like so how are you kind of like a, yeah. in brackets really how are you brackets really and uh, i don't i don't know why particularly i chose that moment to begin to tell the truth but i did probably out of fatigue it definitely wasn't a plan just tired yeah my alcohol. guard was down my guard <laughs> yeah definitely booze but my, my guard was down out of fatigue and i i, I guess i sort of forgot to project at the mm. third time of asking so i found myself saying oh do you know what i don't think i am fine but i didn't finish i couldn't finish the sentence got to the f got to the f of fine i don't think i am and instead of saying fine i found myself just bursting into tears instead like mm. out of nowhere completely just burst into tears in a weather spoons there's still 150 other market research professionals kicking about I'm still in front of my boss and my boss's boss. And your key team member. Key team member and her and a head of another department. Five people that I'd been working really hard for a really long time to project what they expected of me and what I thought they wanted to see and hear. And I'd been doing damn well at that. And now here I am crying, in it, but not in a... Not in that sort of, oh, something's taken me by surprise emotionally and I've welled up slightly. Oh, look at that. But definitely an outpouring of emotion. And once once I began, what was particularly surprising, and when I say surprising, I actually mean frightening, was that I couldn't stop. It tells me a story about her husband, sales director husband, gregarious, fully in control, life and soul of the party, sales director husband. I'm like, right? And she goes, oh, yeah, you remind me. You remind me a little bit of him. And she's so like, here's the thing. My husband had an enormous breakdown several years ago and he's never recovered because he left it too long, too late. He never asked for help. In fact, he just, he did have a few episodes, but he just soldiered on, never stopped, just went back to it, kept going and going and going. And it broke him. It's broken him, in fact. I don't think he'll ever work again. So well done for speaking up. Don't stop speaking now carry on was her wasn't even advice she was entreating me to please carry on at what point did you realize and that you couldn't continue as you were you know because you obviously did some you did realize that and you did then take steps and you talk about being signed off but you know that doesn't happen without you making some decisions personally does it yes and no so 
if I say, oh, yes, I took extra steps and I took control of my destiny and I realized I need to, that's really misleading because I didn't do any of those things for a few days. I just carried on. Right. Tried to tough it out. Because actually, I felt slightly better for having kind of spoken. But but, but underneath that veneer, which was getting weaker and thinner and thinner and thinner, actually, um, like the metaphor that I quite, because I like Marvel films, always have, big, big kid, really. And one of my faves was always Iron Man. And I, I like Tony Stark's pre-marriage persona of billionaire playboy. And I thought, oh, yeah. yes, I, yes, I'd love to be a billionaire playboy. Um, and he has his armor, doesn't he? Iron Man armor. And he keeps upgrading. It's got the Mark One, the Mark Two, the Mark 27, the Mark 45. And they always get more and more sophisticated and more and more powerful. And that resonates so much, in fact. I mean, you can't hear it on a podcast, but I'll show you, Warren. I've got Iron Man hand here. <laughs> he has. Which is, a, which is a desk. It's a desk lamp. My wife was like, what is that hideous bit of tat? Why is that in our house? (laughs) Where's that going? I'm like, on my desk, in my office. She's like, God, I've got to look at that bit of ugliness. But it was a deliberate deliberate choice because I had thought that strength and resilience was being polished, Hmm. wearing, some people might say wear a mask, but for me it was a whole suit of armour. Yeah. Put on a performance, put on a show. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Uh, and if you if you live it convincingly enough, it will become true, and people will believe it of you. And they did, they did yeah. believe it, and so was I trying to believe it too. And I'd upgrade every time I had a knock. I'd upgrade the armor, yeah. and lock it in even tighter. And what was happening? I didn't realize that the chinks in the armor, as it were, cracks, and actually the armor was was falling off. And then an enormous amount of talking happened, an enormous amount of crying happened as I gradually be able to, started to sort of unpack thirty wow. odd years worth of just cramming things in and locking them down, putting them in a box, pick metaphor of choice, piling heavy weights on top of the box so that it didn't yeah. burst out. And she was like, "No, no, we're going to unpack that box, un- open your filing cabinet. We're going to take some files out, and we're going to talk about them." And gradually, because it did get worse before it got better, but gradually, I was a little bit, a little bit calmer, a little bit better, just in small pieces. Sometimes it felt worse, sometimes it felt better. But over time, the, the very the the downward was, curve, yeah. Yeah. I basically, I bottomed out, I guess. I'd hit my, my version of rock bottom, and then we sort of bimbled along the rocky uh the rocky bottom seabed yeah. <laughs> seabed that's what that word. <laughs> the seabed and gradually started to come up again i'm just going to lean out of it because i'm so afraid of cocking it up again as so i was t- saying this to my wife and only just sort of we were having a walk in the park and she just stopped in her tracks and looked at me i was like what what's the matter she goes this is like my second marriage what do you mean she's like it's like i've got married again to a guy that looks like you and is largely you, but it's not you. This is different. You're different. I've never, ever heard this stuff from you ever before. I've been together 20 years. I was like, oh, how are you enjoying this second marriage? Yeah, of yours? Is that a good thing? Yes, <laughs> I hope it is. It's is, is, is a good thing. And she's like, no, it's, uh, yeah. Amazing. It's better. It's better. I just, I know you better in the last couple of years than in, you know, the previous 18 or so. So it's a bit better. So if resilience before meant wearing armor, and it meant repelling attack and deflecting it and not being impacted by difficulty. So that's what it meant to me before. And I also thought that it happened all by itself. 
it was just there. It was just a, it was just an entity mm-hmm. rather than a resource. And I now think my my personal resilience is a resource, and the resource needs to be topped up and uh, fed or nourished is perhaps a better word. In order to be resilient, I need to nourish it, which means doing well-being stuff, but being conscious of it too. So it's now my resilience is now I think something that it is my ability to react to difficulty as opposed to my ability to deflect difficulty actually what i really thought and what i said at the time was that my how could i possibly go and be a coach i i have nothing to offer as a coach i've just been made redundant nobody loves me the imposter syndrome was shouting loud that day Mm -hmm. she went that's not what i said i said go and learn more about it you don't have to be one but I think you'll learn, you'll enjoy the experience and you'll learn about yourself. And she was dead right. Uh, so it was fantastic. Uh, I'd already learned to talk, but I'd never really been trained to listen. And that's largely what the coaching qualification was actually a framework, but the core skill of listening clearly embedded throughout everything that we did. I am at any given day probably as capable of slipping back into those old habits as I ever was. And it's ironic, really, the better, the better things are going for me, the more likely I am to slip back in. Okay. And when I say better, let me be really clear. I'm, I'm really talking about when I'm being booked to do a talk or some, some people off, off the back of some initial conversations have come in and said, okay, yes, please, James, I, I, I'd love for us to work together. And my temptation is to listen to all the voices that say, make hay while the sun shines. Now is the time. (laughs) Come on, fill your diary. It won't last forever. Um, That voice can get pretty loud pretty quick. So I I have to really pay attention to that. If you really care, I think possibly the greatest gift that you could give some employees is twofold, starting with your attention, your your time, and to ask them how they are, really. Yeah. How really are you really? Yeah. And don't don't ask half asked. If you're not prepared to actually sit down and listen to the answer for as long as that answer is, you're actually better off not asking. And if you're not equipped, that's fine. Not everybody is equipped to do this stuff. That's fine. Find someone that is and give them that space and give them that time to settle their own snow globe. But you've got to do the time. A 15-minute slot in your busy diary jammed with back-to-back important executive work, chucking 15 minutes for a check-in may not be enough, and you'll end up opening them up and then just leaving them hanging. Yeah. So don't even do that. Don't If you're not doing it, probably don't do it at all. Ask them how they are and then sit down and listen to the answer. And... Uh, if you're really good at it, do not try and solve, in inverted commas, what they tell you. Because they might really know what's going on with themselves. Yeah, I, I still don't most of the time until I'm done talking it out. Yeah. So give them that space. Great. And time and your attention. If you could go back in time, uh, if we had the DeLorean with us, mm. and you could go back to your young self in your early 20s, what advice would you give yourself? knowing what you know now, James? It's a cracking question, Warren. I'd love to come up with a pithy one-liner for it. 
But I can remember how I was in my 20s and 30s. And there is no piece of advice that I would have listened to because I was very much, I'm fine. I don't need advice. Who's this grey fella whose knees are shot from the future <laughs> that looks a bit like me? What does he know? Nothing. I'm doing just fine, thank you very much. So it wouldn't be advice, actually. What I could do for myself is ask myself questions, not give advice. Ask myself questions and then shut up and listen to the answers. That brings us to the end of our top 10 podcast for 2021. I look forward to having you along for more fascinating conversations in 2022.